This has a really familiar feel to it. (laughs) I'm very glad to be here this morning worshiping with all of you and glad that you are here, members of Southwest, that it's great to be in your presence. And to those who are visiting, we're thankful that you're with us today and we all have the opportunity to lift our thoughts and our minds and our hearts toward the Lord in praise and gratitude. I'm very glad today to know Lee is uh, here with us. We were surprised Catherine showed up yesterday. We did not expect that, but uh, what a nice surprise. And we're grateful for the invitation to be here and get to spend our weekend or part of it with all of you. I wish that uh, Philip and Edmund had been able to make it because of things going on with school and so forth. They, they remained behind in West Tennessee. We're very thankful to be there. The setting is good, the work is good, and we're blessed in many ways. But last night when we left and walked out the doors to the edge of the parking lot there, Lee just looked at me and she said, you know, this is our home. And I agree. We're grateful to be here. When Edmund was born, and we remember here at the time in 2002, we didn't know what we were going to name him until right at the end. In fact, we were on the computer. They like to give me a hard time. I found his name on a computer the night before he was born. And um, I'm going down the list of boys' names. At least I gave him that. And uh, <laughs> I saw the name Edmund, and I thought to myself, well, I love the name Edmund. I knew of Edmund Burke and Edmund Spen. I mean, there have been some famous Edmunds through history, Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia. And so I thought, well, it's a different name. It's not as common, but it's not odd or, you know, crazy or anything like that. He likes to remind me there was also the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but I just kind of slide by that. After he was born on that day, I was driving back to the house and uh, my mother-in-law was there, Catherine and Philip were there, and I called my mom. And, uh, well, let, let me back up. I, I called our families to tell them that, you know, safely arrived and we have Edmund MacDonald Brumbach. And when I called her family, Lee's family, now they're all in western New York. And you know, New York, it's cosmopolitan and sophisticated. And so I call, you know, they have kids' names like Taylor and Theodore and Skyler. And so I called and I said, we have a new baby. His name is Edmund MacDonald. And they all like, oh, that is great. I mean, you could hear cheering in the background on the telephone, right? Oklahoma, okay, small town. I called my mother next, and I said, Mom, we, had, we have a baby boy. She said, that is fantastic. What is his name? And I said, his name is Edmund MacDonald. Silence on the telephone. No, and this is absolutely true. Silence. And then the next word out of her mouth was, really? <laughs> I, I laughed to myself. I said, yeah, Mom, really? And the next word out of her mouth was, Okay, you know, (laughs) a little different, small town, you know, rural setting. What is funny is that, I don't know, maybe, you know, Edmund was about nine and we were all together for Christmas one year and my mom caught me just outside, you know, everybody else had gone back into other parts of the house and she said, I just want to tell you, Edmund was the perfect name for him. Thanks, mom. I appreciate it. You know, it just took about a decade to come around, but everything's good. Now, why do I mention that this morning? Can you imagine if you were called by someone else's name other than the one that you know that you've grown up with that you've had your entire life? I mean, it's funny because, you know, after nine or ten years old, my mom looks and says, you know, Edmund is the perfect name. I, you know, he, I could have called him Scott, you know, or Bobby. 
And it wouldn't have mattered in a sense because we get a decade down the road and that is all we know him as. Have you ever thought about how strange it might sound to to hear you yourself addressed but not with the name that you have carried through your life to this point? I'm a Rick. I've always been a Rick. I don't know anything but Rick. Legally, I have to be Richard, but Rick, you know. And if somebody were to call me Scotty, it's a great name. It would just sound weird because that is not my name. Identity is fundamental to the question of who we are, how we see ourselves, and then how we live. A name is fundamental to the aspect of identity, how you are called. When I first moved to Tennessee, one of our co-workers there, lovely person, I don't know how the wires got crossed up in his mind, and I'm Mark, okay? And he, hey Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, good to see you today. And it went on like that, and then later he's like, you're not Mark. No, no, I've been calling you Mark, yeah, I know. (laughs) And that's okay, it's not a problem. But it is different because we have an identity that is shaped. Our name, where we live, where we've grown up, our experiences. It's a part of defining who we are. In some ways, it's tied so heavily to the root of our our existence, it's kind of like saying, hey, did you remember to breathe yesterday? What do you mean, remember to breathe? I'm still ticking, so I must be breathing. I know. It's not as if I have to remind myself to do that. It is fundamental to my existence to do certain things like that. It's encapsulating the entirety of how I exist and how I think of myself, how I'm known by others. It just doesn't get much more basic and rudimentary than that. So then I think about passages like Galatians 2 and verse 20. We sometimes, we have it as a song that sometimes we'll sing at a camp or something, but I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live. I'm still me. I'm alive. But I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not Christ, but it's not I that lives. It's Christ that lives in me, is what he says. One day in the second year class, and we were right up there, and I can remember being in there, and I looked at the students that morning, and I said, you know, every day when I shave, I'm looking in the mirror, I see Jesus staring back at me. And <laughs> their faces, they're like, oh, how can he say that, you know? And I stopped and said, no, wait, before you, I said, aren't we supposed to be like Galatians 2.20? I realized I look like me, and I don't look like anybody else. Good for them. But... In a sense, aren't we supposed to be able to see Christ living in ourselves and the ones who are around us? That is an identity issue. But it shapes everything that is supposed to flow out from that identity. The Paul who said that in Galatians 2.20 is also the same Paul who would say in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me. Why, Paul? Because you're so great? No, no. Because the next word to say, as I am of Christ. Here is Jesus walking through life, has given us an example, has certainly laid down his life for us, but he's modeled what it means to be an ideal human being. That which God had in mind when he spoke everything into existence in Genesis chapter 1. So if I want the right life, the right identity, has to be rooted Fundamentally, in my identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ and a child of God Most High. And I do need to see that. I need to see Christ 
living in me and those around me ought to as well. I know I'm not perfect. I know that it doesn't happen for me the way that it ought to or that I would like to. I know that I have to say I'm sorry. Things Jesus, he really he never had to say I'm sorry. Now he could say this is regrettable, but that's not the same as owning a failure. I know that I do, and frankly, you do too, and it's just because we don't do always what we should. But we can still strive for allowing Jesus to be seen in us, as Paul mentioned. It isn't arrogance. It shouldn't be arrogance. It should be an aspiration. This is the person God is calling us all to be, and the one that I want to be with all of my heart. And when I fall short, I want to do better. You may ask, well, how does that figure into a lesson that is entitled, Committed to the Cause? The reason I begin with this discussion of attitude and and, um, identity is because what we do is an expression of who we are and what we see ourselves valuing, engaged in, and pursuing. The outside is a reflection of the inside. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 15. And for me to be the right person in the action or business of life, I ought to be, you ought to be the right person on the inside from that most fundamental or foundational level. It must have pained the great patriarch Jacob as he is, you know, aging and, you know, his own uh, end is nearing in Genesis chapter 49. He had all of his children come in front of him and he spoke words about each one. In the first one, we're told in Genesis 49 and verse 4 specifically, he had his son Reuben come before him. Talked about Reuben preeminent, you know, and he's the oldest child. But he spoke words in verse 4 that must have pained him as a father to have to say. He said, Reuben, you are as unstable as water. You get a cup of, I don't know, maybe you had a cup of honey or something, you know, and you're going to set it on the table and it might be filled near the top, but you can carry it. It's very stable. It's viscous. It stays level, you know, and, and spilling it is not easily done, actually. Then you go in the kitchen and you're bringing out something else. Maybe you've got a cup of coffee or tea for you and your friend or whomever, and it's near the rim and you have to walk incredibly cap- carefully. Why? It's unstable. It doesn't hold its shape inside the cup easily. And now for a father to look at his grown, older son and to look at him and just be honest and say, I love you with all of my heart. You are my firstborn child. You would be the person who, in a sense, is the patriarch now of our family. But Reuben, you have a character issue. Fundamentally, in terms of identity and everything that stems from that, you are a shaky ground. You are not consistent and what you ought to be. I don't want to be a Reuben, and you don't want to either. And I'm sorry, it kind of feels bad in a way to take someone from the past and use their name as an example of what not to be, but you know, that, that analysis was from someone who was really on his side. And it was a decision about which Reuben had the power, final say so. I don't want to be unstable as water. Before I stop and think about what is it that Rick can contribute to the cause, what you can contribute to the cause of Christ, or anything else, really, at the root of it all is the question, who are you? How do you define yourself? What does God see when he looks down and watches your life, your thoughts, and the actions that come forth from your heart? 
In Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 1, Solomon is writing and he says, My son, I love this wording. It's an unusual wording to me. It just caught my eye. But he said, let your heart keep my commandments. That's odd, you know, in a way. Because I might say, well, you know, let your actions keep my commandments or something. He doesn't say that. He says, let your heart. We think about the Bible heart, this this thinking, this feeling, this most interior aspect. And he says, you let your heart do my commandments. What we are on the outside will never be right unless we're already following Christ on the inside. We want to be committed to the cause of Jesus Christ to make a positive contribution. Our lives, the lives of others, the purpose for which Jesus came. We have to have a well-settled identity and know who we are and who God wants us to be. It'll always be better for us. Everything God encourages us is going to be profitable, beneficial for us. But in the end, if I am or if I'm not, that is my choice. I want to have an identity that would be consistent with that of Jesus. Stable, moral, upright, spiritual, and would be in harmony with the reasons for which God created the human race to begin with. Another aspect of that is that that type of identity, that deeply rooted reflection on self and uh, God's creation and our purpose, it also has a value when I look at the people who are around me. Before I talk about being committed to the cause, and people might initially think, well, these steps and do these things, that's fine. The doing is necessary. But before we get to the doing, self and others. What value would I place or you place upon the people that you meet when you're walking down the street each day, to quote Sesame Street? When we read about Jesus, the Gospel of Luke is very often pointed to as Luke gives this expose of Jesus and he will meet and deal with anybody in a very favorable way. Now, if it's not a pleasant conversation, it's not because Jesus doesn't want it to be so. It's because of the choices of the other person. I encourage you sometime, just reading through the book of Luke, stop and notice the wide array of persons with whom Jesus positively interacts. There are the lepers. And when they call out to Jesus, he will stop and he will interact with them and he heals them. He gives them time and he gives them divine power and improves immeasurably their experience. And then he says, now go do what the law of Moses says, spiritual encouragement as well. He will heal people like the woman who has the flow of blood. He will heal people who ask him. He will return sight to the blind. He will give hearing to those who are deaf. But Jesus has time for all kinds of people. In John chapter 4 and verse 9, he comes to this well in Samaria, and there's a woman there drawing water, and he asks her for a drink. And she is evidently grasped or gripped enough by what he asks that in chapter 4 verse 9, she looks at him and says, how is it that you, a Jewish man, are willing to talk to me, a Samaritan woman? And there's even a parenthetical note in there that says, because Jews didn't like dealing with Samaritans. But I'm sure that Jesus just looked over and he saw a woman, a human. And he interacted with her. She blessed him by giving him a drink. He blessed her far more by talking about life, spiritual living, about the future and where it's going. 
She was so impressed by him that she went into her village and she called out the others and said, you've got to come find him. I found the Messiah. Jesus saw value in all people. And even if others might look over to this particular person or this particular group and say, I don't have any time for them. I don't want to interact with them. Jesus had no such qualms. Even when his disciples occasionally put up this artificial barrier, if you will, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, there were people who came to Jesus, and I'm convinced they knew who he was because they, they asked him to pray for and bless their children. Man, if I were in his presence and our kids were, absolutely, I would do the same. The apostles stopped him, them, tried to, and said, you know, He's a busy man. He's got a lot of important things to do, people needing his time, etc. And no, 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 no. And Jesus stopped them. And he said, no, you allow those children. And he did that, just what was asked. Blessed them, prayed over them. Jesus has time for all people. If I really want to be a disciple of Jesus and contribute to the cause, I have to be just as willing to engage with anyone. Yes, the people who are in the best of circumstances or made the best of appearances, and for those who are not. And you know, it doesn't matter because at the root of it all is not just my identity, but theirs. Galatians chapter, excuse me, Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. Everybody is created in the image of God. You realize that every person whose hand you shake, or I guess in the days of COVID, everybody whose fist you bump is an eternal being. Now, not all directions, but mathematically array, fixed starting point. That's true, but will go on forever. And God wants them to go on forever into heaven. Okay, so if every person has that value, then I have no right to disregard anyone. I don't have to be a doormat and have people walk over me. I don't have to put up with, you know, ugly and unkind. I I, I want to return good for evil, but, you know, still. I want to make sure that I see the value of every person and you also doing the same. Together, what that makes us is an environment like Andy spoke about last night where people matter. It's not just about numbers. It isn't about digits on a board. It is about every person being important in God's eyes. I believe that Jesus would die and give his life for any person. Now, I don't mean that every person is the recipient, although that's certainly desirable. What I mean is I wouldn't at all be surprised if God looked down and saw that there was one person, maybe the the one that others would dismiss, that needed the cross And for that one person alone, that Jesus would come and be the Savior. Before I can help the cause, I have to see the worth of every single person. Because as Christians, wearing that name, when we reach out, we carry the name of Jesus with us. And what we say to the world about Christianity is often just couched in how we deal with other people and express their significance, how important they are and how much we want the best for them. And the other aspect that I want to mention before we close this morning is that once those are in place, we still could talk about, well, we'll do this, we'll contribute this way, we'll contribute that way. But what I want us to realize is that every person makes a contribution, or can. As a younger person, I I often would hear talk or discussions, or we're going to do this, we're going to do that. It would be very easy for me to stop to think, well, I'm not one of the adults and I don't do those things. You know, I'll worry about that when I'm old. (laughs) No, the answer is that anyone can serve the Lord. Anyone can be committed to the cause. Anyone can make a positive contribution at any age. So I see younger persons in here. I mean, really, 
Um, I keep up with you on Facebook, right? And new babies and new faces and all of that. It's fabulous to stay connected. But there's no age where you're too young to make a difference on behalf of the Lord. You're going to be down the hallway in the school building I will never walk into just because it's not my circumstance. You will be able to say a kind word to someone who's hurting. You'll be able to pick up someone who has been bullied recently. You will be able to encourage somebody who did poorly on a test and is very anxious or worried. You have a power to make a difference whether you're in the second grade or the 22nd grade. It doesn't matter. It isn't just that we have to be older to be able to make a positive difference or a contribution. It isn't that we have to hold this position or hold that position. That isn't true at all. I love the reading that we had a few minutes ago, and I appreciate Greg for doing that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, everybody is important in the body. And it also means, you'll notice, wherever the hearing be, wherever the seeing and all of that, that also suggests that there's an action and a contribution that each piece or part is making. Same thing here. I love the thought that we can all make contributions. Now, sometimes they're very visible. Maybe it's behind a microphone. Maybe it's not. In John chapter 1, verse number 40 through 42, we catch sight of this figure named Andrew. who's going to be one of the 12 apostles. Andrew sees Jesus, and he comes and finds his brother Peter, and he leads Peter to Jesus. You've got to meet this man. I'm very grateful. I'm sure that Peter was thankful to his brother Man, I can't believe, thank you so much for introducing me to him. And isn't it funny that Peter goes on to be one of the high, we said, more visible, you know, high profile apostles. And Andrew largely fades from view. We really don't see him much. We know his name in the list of the 12, you know, that Jesus uh, assembled. And he's certainly included when it talks about, you know, the 12 were gathered. But you don't. I mean, we just don't see Andrew. I really don't know a lot of what his ministry and things involved. You know what? I don't have to. I'm grateful that whatever he did, he did it, and it made a difference, even if I'm not aware of it. The same could be true for most of the apostles. I don't know what other things Thomas ended up going out and doing or, or some of the other figures. We, we know Peter, James, and John, but some of the other ones kind of fade from view, but not from God's view. And not from the lives of the people whom they encountered and touched. So this is my way of saying it may be that you contribute to the cause of Jesus, not only with living an identity of a Christian, not only seeing the value in other people. Maybe you do some things that nobody's ever going to trumpet or write about. It doesn't show up in a bulletin. It doesn't put you in front of the microphone. And you know what? That doesn't matter. Man, you make a difference. And God bless you for the things that you do to bless others and to advocate for the kingdom of Jesus, the Christ. Luke chapter 17 and verse 10, Jesus gave this statement to his apostles. They, they often jockeyed for position, right? The pecking order kind of thing. And Jesus always, I mean, multiple times the text tells us, the Bible tells us that he had to remind them, it is not about climbing the ladder to be the one who gives everybody else the orders of what to do. He held himself up as an example on multiple occasions and said, I am a servant. He washed their feet the night before he was arrested with a towel, what a servant would do. And he said, do you know what I'm doing this for? Not only do your feet stink and you need a clean feet, okay? I'm showing you that there is nothing below you and there's nothing that, you know, you should not be willing to do. And he modeled that for them. But in Luke 17 and verse 10, Jesus is talking and he represents really this attitude that I need to have, you need to have, we all need to have. 
And he represents these figures coming in and simply saying, we are unworthy or unprofitable servants. We're just doing that which is our duty to do. Today it's something more high profile or bigger. Tomorrow it's going to be something that only two people will know about. The person I helped and God. And me. But we're doing that which is our duty to do. And when an entire population of people have a sense of these things, who they are, who others are, and the desire to make a difference, there's no limit on what can be accomplished. Now we could have the conversation about what are some of the things that need to be done. But before we ever get there, it's a question of who are we as we take up a role and serve and work. It starts on the inside. It manifests itself on the outside. And it changes the world that is around us. It is so important that we have a clear sense of identity because that motivates and drives everything else. That sense of identity also really answers the question of who are we when we stand before God in the day of judgment and horizon is eternity. And where do we go from there? I know I want to go into the shores of heaven and I know that you do too. And wouldn't it be great if every person sitting in this room, we were there together and we would just have a gathering, we'd sing a whole bunch more songs and keep doing it and it would be bliss. And that's what God wants for all of us as well. It starts here. It works its way out. Someone very helpfully put together the phrase one time. I I think it's worth repeating. They said, exhibiting or typifying this in-to-out structure, they said, plant a thought and you'll harvest an action. Plant an action and you'll harvest a habit. It becomes repetitive. Plant a habit and you'll develop a character or harvest a character. And the last stage of that was plant a character and you'll harvest an eternity. And we want our eternity to be one with God in the shores of heaven. My hope for every person this morning is that we are committed to the cause, first in making sure that we are the right character for God. Number two, that we see the value of every person around us. And then we'd be willing to make our contribution, whatever it may be, small or large, because they all add up to something extraordinary. But it can't start until we are all Christians and disciples of Jesus the Christ. This morning, if you're with us and you have not been baptized into Christ and had your sins washed away, the first person to to work on is you. To allow the blood of Jesus that he shed at Calvary to wash away all of the wrongs and the darknesses of the past and to give you a chance to stand clean and pure and start again. That's what we'd like for every person here. And if we can help you to do that this morning, we'd love to assist. All you have to do is tell us so. And if you're here as a Christian and you somehow lost sight, don't be a Reuben. I don't. I think about it. From time to time, I don't want to be a Reuben. I want to be someone who is steady. My family can depend upon, my fellow Christians can depend upon, who my God can look down and be pleased with. If you've strayed as a Christian and kind of forgotten and lost your way, what a great time for you to privately or publicly make amends. But by the time we leave this auditorium this morning, let's each one say, I'm committed from the inside out and be ready to walk at the side of our Lord. If we can help you this morning, please come while we stand and while we sing.